As war in Ukraine nears its sixth month, many of the worst fears of Russian tactics have been realized. In particular, the deliberate destruction of the Ukrainian infrastructure, their agriculture, and their economy. And this looks to continue, even if a direct threat of total occupation has, for now, faded. In this last episode of a mini-series, then, we'll be looking at what happens to the country when the fighting subsides and the rebuilding begins. What will Ukraine look like culturally and physically? Who will pay for it? And how will a country previously beset with problems from corruption to mismanaged development manage such an enormous and daunting task? And of course, how will they learn to live with their nearest and largest neighbour, Russia? This is Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast, and I'm Ned Sedgwick. Who better to speak for this episode than Vadim Pristaiko, the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Kingdom, a man whose job it is to convey to Britain and the wider West exactly what Ukraine needs at any given time, and will be intricately aware of what Ukraine needs when the war ends. Ambassador Prostaiko, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the on the podcast. My first question touches on the way the war has has displayed this strong sense of Ukrainian national identity, which is separate to Russia. Uh, but of course, there has been a long historical and cultural link with Russia for centuries and before the war. How do you see a way that this new coalesced Ukrainian identity can? coincide and eventually live alongside Russia? We will coincide with Russia. Sooner or later, the war will be over. And it's very painful for Ukrainians to think of this new era in our relationships. But that's just human reality. We will find a way how we live with them. But to to restart, relaunch these relations, I believe that we have to sort of have our relationships, relationships sorted. So put aside all the previous experiences. And sometimes Russians are telling, you know, you are not even a state. And they will tell our partners and and allies that, well, why would you stand for these guys? They're not even a real state. We know how to take care of them. We know how to deal with them. My answer in this that you might think whatever you want about us. You can rewrite our history, which we are doing for, for centuries. What is important for us now, the new relationship, the new Ukraine, which is, as you rightly asked in the question, is just emerging. And this Ukraine will be, will be different. We are a big nation, 40 plus million people, enough to create our own history, enough to withstand the pressure from Russia. This is not the, the first time they come. And unfortunately, this is not the last. I guess that we will preserve in this war the most important part, which Putin was targeting from the very beginning our ability to make our own choice. Our choice was made. It was not pretty. It was painful politically. Sometimes we lost people in the process. Our economy, economic development was hampered. We are not part of many, many organizations Organizations we wanted to be, like EU and NATO at least, but we are getting there. And this is the moment when we will be, we will be given another chance to restart, rethink our nation. And I don't care. I don't want to go all the way in Kiev Rus and, you know, debate who's who's told in whose name and which language is the first and orthodoxy, all of it. I will just, I guess now it's enough. We proved our right to have our history started. There is a likelihood at the moment that in the near future, uh, in the next five, ten years, part of Ukraine may still be occupied by Russia. 
has there been thought given to how uh, Ukraine could manage to join these organizations whilst essentially being partly occupied? There are two, two answers to this, and I actually very much appreciate this question. It's not coming very often. First of all, purely political. You know, to resolve the issue we have right now in Ukraine with Russia, we have, as my, my deep belief, we have to defeat them militarily on the field of the ground. I know how, how crazy it sounds. I know that not many people will buy it, but those who would open their minds to even consider it would immediately start seeing other options. Because if we are you know, thinking, okay, how we uh, give up to Russia to, in a way we won't lose much, that's wrong thinking. But if you want to know how it could be done in, in uh, pragmatic and formal terms, there is article, if I'm not mistaken, number six in the uh, uh, North Atlantic Treaty, the founding paper of NATO, which is describing the boundaries of NATO. NATO is a particular, uh, have particular territorial responsibility. For example, if tomorrow United Kingdom will be attacked in Falklands, NATO is not responsible. So this is something people don't know. If it is lower, the, the ship, the, the NATO ship will be attacked lower than particular, particular uh, in, in Africa. This is not a, a responsibility of the NATO. Although the ships, computers, planes, this, this theory, theory is changing. Each and every attack on, the, on a particular machine or particular soldier, particular equipment will be considered as attack on NATO. But territorial is here. What I'm trying to tell you here, that I, I can foresee when the NATO is saying that the territory of NATO responsibility goes from what is described in Article 6 plus Ukrainian territory by such meridian and such magnitude. So in theory, it is more than possible. It's not, it's not the end of the world. Whatever Russia is saying that we will st start a little victorious war in Moldova to preclude them from going anywhere in Georgia and Ukraine. Look at, look at geography, right? They are not attacking Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, all the stands because they are not, they have no ambitions to join. They are doing it deliberately, trying to create the small pieces where they can anchor their interests and pull their, these nations toward them, at the same time creating problems for organizations like EU and NATO. I, I, I would urge NATO to remind Russians that there is a way to describe the particular territory of, of NATO responsibility. When it comes to the actual rebuilding of, of Ukraine, the physical rebuilding of, of the country, um, given Russia's, Russia's destructive tactics, what can organizations like the EU and the UN and NATO do to, to help rebuild Ukraine as quickly as possible? Is it a manpower issue? Is it just a money issue? This is something we are constantly discussing in Ukraine, even in the midst of, of the war, because this is something that's giving people, you know, the, uh, the hope and it's just telling them why we are fighting, not to preserve Ukraine, which we are, most of the case we are quite unhappy with, but build better Ukraine. And this is not just dream. We, we're trying to understand what Ukraine should become after war. Will it be the same grain-growing nation which will supply grain for the lower price and will be quite happy on, on some additional value, which is not? And, and with the infrastructure which is crumbling and needs so much on investments, what will happen with our space and air? 
which was quite unsuccessfully trying to find back its place in, in the international market. So there is also a chance. And for some crazy thinking people, this is a chance to, you know, to totally rebuild our nation. I would, I would expect that uh, it will happen in three stages. Stage number one, where we will have to immediately sort of humanitarian emergency relief. So rebuild, I mean, you know, sewerage, uh, some of the roads, electricity, get gas back to the to the homes, some schools, minimum. This is this is, uh, I guess, will be in most of the cases helped by European Union, by UN, by uh, agencies. By the way, I would I would love to see Russia paying for everything they destroyed. I don't even understand why so many nations are so generously offering their their assistance. But I believe that's that's the reality. We have to, you know, to buy to, to reality. I, I was going to ask about that actually. What what your views are towards uh, reclaiming sanctioned Russians' money to to help rebuild Ukraine? Is that something you're? I can see you nodding. On a on a sec on a second stage of this rebuild, we will we will go m- much more systemic. So we we renewing the the infrastructure, bridges. Uh, I don't know schools, universities hospitals, uh, governmental buildings, all of this. On on the third one, we will have to find the way how to become better Ukraine than we were before. This is sort of our future plan, whether we go all the way into, I don't know, IT, because it is so so growing, so fast growing in Ukraine, whether we seriously think of, of green transformation, even having all these troubles with the with the renewables in Ukraine and around the globe, so this is the third stage, which we will have to dream, but we can live sort of for for the time being. What you're asking is whether we will be able to collect enough money from the reparations from Russians. This is unfortunately very much will depend on what will be the terms of our peace. That's why I'm again back 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 to the to the issue of whether we defeat Russians on the ground or fields of, of, of battle, because that will be the better conditions for future reparations and the sanctions and everything. That's a clear cut. But I understand that in a real a real world the, the picture might be very different. So if if international organizations and I see that EU is trying to play the most significant role, they will take the lead. I would expect they will come with the list of of expectations or requirements if you wish so that's where we will be able to negotiate what we are doing as ukrainians and expected by our partners you know to be able to to help to be helped financially this will be i guess quite painful process when we will bargain whether we spend this money which are provided for the hospital or for systemic change of i don't know energy distribution but that's a exciting exciting process we just need to defeat Russians, and we'll be we'll be on our way. You you mentioned rebuilding a better Ukraine, and, and one of the issues which which affected Ukraine uh, pre-war is is corruption. Um, and of course, with all this money flowing into Ukraine, especially linked to development and uh, and construction, um, what measures do you think Ukraine can implement to make sure that that money isn't um, either siphoned off or the proper development standards are brought in. I, I mean, I was reading, I was speaking to a Ukrainian friend the other day, actually, and he was saying that some law, a law has recently been passed in the Ukrainian parliament 
that speeds up development, potentially at the risk of building standards. I mean, is that a concern? It is a concern. If, if you find some, somebody who is annoyed by our corruption more than Ukrainians, please dial my number. We, you know, we, we really, there's people probably do not understand sometimes that we are suffering and we realize that we, we realize that we are suffering through it. The way how you turn this huge ship with a huge inertia, 40 plus million people who are coming from just one generation away from the system where we, you do not have even your flat in your possession. So the way when you actually can possess, I don't know, Ferrari car, this is to create the whole, the whole class of oligarchs. It's a simplified picture, but just to give you a sense of what this particular nation is going through. So unfortunately, this corruption became a part of the fabric of society. How to unroot all of it? I believe that we, we have to start with education in, kin in kindergarten and then through the schools and then pay the uh, decent salaries to the, to the people and so on and so forth. But this process was going and we managed to, for example, to root out the political corruption. Our elections are, can be compared with what I even remember as a diplomat where 10, 15, 20 years ago. So the process is here. How to create mechanisms which will allow, for example, donors to see, oh yeah, it's not perfect, but it is working. I guess that on top of what Ukrainians want, and the Ukrainian government offered the commission, which will look after these, this donor money and the directions where it will be spent. I guess regardless of what we want, the, Europe, the international community, mostly European, uh, European Union, maybe World Bank, all these big financial organizations, will come with the offer of, uh, sort of, I don't know, board of directors, trustees, somebody who will be able to become a reliable you know, source of, of truth and, and decisions. Maybe it will be, I mean, maybe European Commission will provide the sort of framework of bureaucrats who will be doing it. Although Ukraine, for many different reasons, would love to make and have more control over the process. And I believe it's just right. So the balance will be somewhere here. Expectations from the donors, money, and some Ukrainian counterpartner, which will be able to run and, and oversee the mechanism. All of them, on top of this, uh, audits and everything will be introduced. This is, by the way, a very interesting example for many other nations. Instead of having occupational authority, how it was in Marshall Plan, we can have sort of more civilized way. Ukraine is not an enemy who had to be sort of re, re, you know, retaught how to behave better. It was with Japan or, or Germany. No, this is a different case. And I believe this we are on a different level of civilizational development where we can actually strike the deal and have something better as a mechanism, how to be sure that the money is spent in the best possible way. In terms of your agriculture in Ukraine, obviously it's something very, very important to Ukrainian identity as well as economy seems to have been deliberately targeted by Russia. What are your hopes with this grain deal? Uh, do you think the grain deal is, does offer a, a genuine hope that Ukrainian agriculture can kind of steady itself amongst the war? If you allow me, I will step aside for a sec, reminding that Ukraine is not just agriculture. And we, we, we described as agriculture and national we've been able to produce food. We have to feed seven plus billion people around the globe. And Ukraine itself is responsible for 400 million at least. And like some, some of the products like cooking oil, 47% of sunflower, sunflower globally is produced in Ukraine. So we are proud that we actually can bring to the table, to the, our common table, something. 
But if you look at our real, real economy, you will find out that even at Soviet Union times, we were producing 47% of industrial outcome of Soviet Union. It was highly industrialized uh, part of Soviet Union. It was not biggest by territory, but almost producing half of everything. So after these uh, relationships, these ties were severed by the collapse of Soviet Union, these this huge factories are not needed uh, anymore. So the production level, I mean, really, really fell low. We, we still have to rethink the technologies here. People are here. But talking back to getting back to the agriculture, uh, Ukraine is not uh, is not urban, sorry, urbanistically developed nation as, for example, the European nations or United States, where only two percent of population are actually doing something on 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 a, on a dirt. In Ukraine, is twenty seven percent of people are still employed in agriculture, which is a very high very high level. You are talking about the drop in this in the uh, in the jobs because of the, the part of the nation is occupied. You're right. And especially when you have so many people already occupied in, in agriculture. So our, our idea right now is how we maintain the level of agriculture which is needed for us to, you know, to survive, not, not to eat, we, we will feed ourselves, but to survive economically. And at the same time, how we get back to industrial or maybe post-industrial development. This grain deal is just opening up the way for, for export of nearly 23 million tons this of this harvest and around 60 million tons for the next. Ukraine will, will be able to produce around 100 if we are allowed to, you know, to, to, to develop properly. So that's the price, not for Ukraine, but for the whole of the world. Yesterday, the first ship went with 45,000 tons. You can imagine 45,000 and 23 millions. This is still way to go. But we hope that this deal will allow us, you know, that's actually our expert. We want to earn some money in decency, not just look into pockets of the taxpayers in the West. With reincorporating areas, uh, previously separatist areas. It was, it was given the thought, and, uh, you know, we're constantly repeating that people who are living there, that's our people. We will have to judge what happened. We will have to go through some uh, process to understand who are collaborating who was just the, the uh, targeted there, the state there, with, for the many reasons, family reasons, uh, who were cooperating to survive. And I, I guess that would be very civilized, civilized uh, sort of process. Uh, in the end of the days, when and, and if we, we manage to, to clear our lands, the most of these fighters will escape to Russia anyways. If they want these people, good reasons. We don't, obviously, we don't need them. We will. We want to prosecute everything for the atrocities they've done, but this is let. Let's leave it for the after after war. We are telling these people in that's our land. You can come to us right now. We will help you. President Zelensky is doing it constantly. Last time he managed. He stated it just a couple of days ago. The guys will help. Please come. If Ukraine is not perfect, if you want to be part of building this better, come right now. We will sooner or later. We will. We will. We will clear this land, we will get it back. But if you want to spend your life in a nation which can freely travel around the globe, which can develop the, one, the way you like, which if you want to have free media or free access to services, please come, come right now. We don't have money, much of the, of the resources, but we will settle you down. We will find a way how to do it. This is, I guess, very civilized first attempt. Then we will be able to think what we do with how we, how we, re-engage with these people, how we win the minds and hearts back.
is the sense in Ukraine that managing the war crimes trials is something that Ukraine would want to do entirely themselves? Or, or is there an argument that it would be better approached in a kind of multinational way? That's, that's what we already have done. There are uh, not just our expectation that the court will be, will be settled quite soon. We already made it officially. But we have the uh, investigating teams from the UK included. Although already working in Ukraine, French and some other nations, just helping us to collect evidence, to collect data for the future for the future processes. We we're all the way into internal, internalization of this case. Look at MH17. We officially handed over the investigation to the to the Netherlands because we wanted to maintain the you know the, the at least the image of this process as 100% clear and transparent. What do you think? the single most important thing Ukraine needs at the moment? I, I know that people would, would tell you immediately things like MLRS or high-reaching hand artillery. What I believe that we have to preserve is just the uh, support of, of people, the public, the, if you wish, the voters, if I, if I want to be really 100%, you know, the politically dirty. We have to maintain this support so the politicians will continue taking the right decisions. What I really want that people will understand why we are doing it is because the international law was broken, international practice and rules were broken. The promise that Ukraine will be defended when it gave the nuclear weapons were broken. So this is something I want to reach the public with very simple messages. Like, guys, you promised us to defend. How will you talk to Iran in North Korea if you could not manage to defend Ukraine, which agreed on this and trusted you. We entrusted our future and yes, you are helping, you are protecting, you are supporting. This process is not over. Let's finish with that. We will make a huge example for the rest of the world and Russia included. Next up, we'll be hearing from Professor Georgi Kasyanov, who we spoke to a few weeks ago regarding Ukrainian identity. I wanted to follow up on my conversation with the ambassador to find out what his perspective on the Ukrainian rebuild was and what we should look out for. My name is Georgi Kasyanov. I am professor at Maria Curie Sklodowska University in Lublin, Poland. What are your main concerns regarding the rebuild? What should the outside world be aware of to ensure that it is successfully rebuilt? Well, yes, it's uh, well. That's that's a part of the uh, broader discussion about uh, restoration of Ukraine after the war uh, war will be ended. And uh, yes, uh, there are some structural and uh, not not just infrastructural, but structural problems in Ukrainian economy. For instance, when uh, we have a extremely uh, unpleasant uh, taxation law, uh, and uh, we have unfortunately we have uh, in recent years we had a tendencies to to restrict uh, private initiatives and to impose more, more and more and more limitations on private activities coming from the central power. And uh, so I think that probably uh, the major challenge to Ukrainian recovery after the war, war, uh, war will be, would be the taxation legislation and legislation as such, which uh, concerns economic activities. Another great problem is corruption, which is, uh, which, uh, well, became a kind of cultural uh, phenomenon in Ukraine and which uh, permeates all, all levels of society. What do you think when the war ends, 
Ukraine will need the most for the rebuild? Yeah, that's of course money first. It's <laughs> it's at this moment it is really uh, it's it's of a great need. We lose uh, five billion dollars uh, a month. So, well, I know it's, uh, there's kind of paternalistic and idealistic views uh, about the West in in Ukraine about part of elites or part of population that West uh, that good West would come and uh, extend uh, the hand of help and uh, we will uh, we will be happy because uh, West would help us uh, financially and uh, would as you mentioned it would guard the uh, the uh, the reforms here but generally when dealing with government uh, the West should take uh, into account civil society not just this part of civil society, which was fed by the uh, grants and uh, different programs, uh, but also this part, that the part of civil society, which was out of light of uh, granting, et cetera, et cetera, but which uh, showed the uh, absolutely phenomenal uh, capacity of self-organization and uh, and uh, proactive uh, proactive uh, deals. It's been a real privilege doing this series. I found it at times quite overwhelmingly bleak. This episode in particular has made me hopeful that a better future does await the people of Ukraine. When we started, it looked like the entire country might be occupied and there might be no Ukraine. And now that is a distant memory. I mean, the tragic offside is that is that the Russian Federation is now limited to doing as much damage as it possibly can where it can do that damage in order to salvage any type of victory. And that is a great tragedy. But speaking to Vadim and Georgi and all the conversations I've had with people has made me realize that Ukraine is united uh, and the way in which Ukraine is united seems to be very honest. It seems to be very inclusive of all the nationalities and languages that might exist within Ukraine. And that there is a common path forward. I'm sure there are going to be some more devastating twists and turns in the war. And my heart goes out to the people of Ukraine and all those affected by the war. I also think that what Vadim said is crucially important, that we in the West, living in democracies where our vote does matter, need to stay engaged and need to stay on top of what's going on. So for the final time, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Vadim Prostyko and Georgi Kasyanov. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer was David Dargahi from Earshot Strategies. And thank you to Nick Capling at Chatham House.